Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, Douglas Holzegen will discuss different components in the recent COVID-19 legislation known as the American Rescue Plan. Doug, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. How are you doing? Uh, not too bad. Um, how have the last couple of weeks been for yourself? Big news was I got a trip to Connecticut to see my new granddaughter and uh, my daughter and son-in-law and and, and two, two-year-old granddaughter um, for the first time in a year. So, you know, all, all good. That was fun. Yeah. Yeah, we missed you at the weekly uh, staff meeting last 4 p.m. staff meeting last week. So I um, uh, hope you enjoyed that staff meeting. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, anyways, let's jump right into things. You know, as um, President Biden's American Rescue Plan makes its way through Congress, goes through the committee process, the floor process, you know, the Senate rules. You've had the opportunity to testify twice on different components in this $1.9 trillion package. Last week, you testified before the Senate Banking Committee. Um, This week, probably at the time we put this podcast out, you'll be testifying before the Senate Budget Committee. Um, So I'd like to focus today's podcast on those discussions. Let's start with your testimony before the Senate Banking Committee. What were the key points you proposed for that recovery package? So I think there are really three important things to recognize. The the Congress's actions thus far in response to the pandemic and the and the economic downturn that it produced um, were appropriately timed, they were appropriately scaled, and they were appropriately designed. And the American Rescue Plan is none of those. Um, you know, this is not uh, you know April of last year when the economy was falling at a, an over thirty percent annual rate. Uh, the economy has since begun to recover. It has grown continuously throughout 2020. Um, best estimates are the growth rate in the first quarter can be somewhere between 6 and 9%, which is really strong. And the CBO puts it at 4.6% for the year. So we're hardly in a recession. and There's hardly the need for some sort of big stimulus. Um, second thing is the scale. I mean, $1.9 trillion just dwarfs the size of, uh, of whatever problem you might be trying to, to solve. The the Congressional Budget Office keeps track of you know, what is uh, total production or income in the economy, GDP. It also has an estimate of the potential of the economy produced. So get everyone back to work. What would be the level of GDP that we would have? And uh, we're about you know, $450 billion below potential GDP. Well, you don't need a $1.9 trillion bill to solve that. And um, we did a trillion dollars last month, and that hasn't fully taken effect yet. So Um, I I think the scale is all wrong, Um, and and a a much more modest uh, proposal would would be more appropriate. And and then there's the what's in it. Well, what should be in it are things that um, either directly address the roots of the economic downturn, that's the virus, and the fact that people are uh, unable and or unwilling to go out and go to restaurants and travel and see concerts and do a lot of things. Uh, A lot of those people are high-income Americans, and this will do nothing to change that. Um, So there could be made a case that we need more money for vaccine distribution, contact tracing, testing. You can sell me on that. Uh, You you could make the case that uh, there are people out there who are badly hurt last year. They were unemployed for 27 weeks or longer, and and they're they're struggling, in which case a targeted um, set of uh, financial support would make sense. But that's not in there. We have this sort of 
broad uh, sweep of checks going to people who never lost a day's work. And, um, you know, th- we, we see a lot about food insecurity. And, and so maybe there's a place for additional SNAP money, but there isn't really a, a place for the kinds of uh, things they're doing that they claim are about the COVID-19. And there's also things in here that have nothing, nothing, nothing to do with fighting a, uh, an economic downturn or recession. Um, you know, there's a complete bailouts of the multi-employer pension system where we're just writing a taxpayer check to, met, to make sure the benefits get paid. And there's the minimum wage, as you know, that's that's in here. That's that's not a good news story for the small businesses who are closed right now, the people who are out of work. That's that's a long time, uh, you know, objective. And, and, and I could go on. I mean, it is full of things which are either permanent policy they would like to do, but they're going to stick them in here or just inappropriate. And, and so uh, it's hard for me to get sort of particularly enthusiastic about this effort. It doesn't doesn't match the problem. So, so it seems like a lot of what you're saying is basically it's just not focused enough. Right. And and so another way to think about it, because we've, we've used these words in, in previous podcasts, uh, there should be no hesitancy to run additional deficits to do things that are targeted on the problems that produced the downturn and are targeted on the virus. Well, this isn't those things. And so we should be hesitant to run deficits for these things. Right? So this is just really you know, an inappropriate use of, of the borrowing capacity of the Treasury. Mm-hmm. One of the things I always find interesting about congressional testimony is um, what the senators or Congress uh, people focus their questions on. What were right. some of the focus of the senators' questions to you during that hearing? Well, I got no questions from the Democratic side at all. And so that's that's become a pattern. Uh, I get uh, essentially questions from Republicans that ask me to tee up one of those three points and, and emphasize it again. And so this that wasn't a particularly um, enlightening hearing, in my view. Um, what, whatever I wrote down, they could have could have lived with. Sometimes you, you learn a little bit more in the Q&A. We'll see how the Budget Committee uh, goes um, this week. The Budget Committee, in my history, is a little more freewheeling. Um, it doesn't have a specific jurisdiction uh, for any particular program. So it, it sort of runs across everything. And uh, a lot of budget hearings are like the wild, wild west. So I'm ready. <laughs> Sounds like, well, I'll have to turn in tomorrow uh, and see how it goes. You know, uh, one of the other interesting things that I've been hearing a lot recently is the same talking point that comes up over and over again um, for those arguing the passing the full $1.9 trillion package. And that is, you know, it's better to err on the side of doing too much than too little. These advocates point the lessons from the response to the 2008 crisis uh, during the Obama years. What exactly are these people saying? And, you know, are they right? Um, so let me just get a little petulant about this. I'm really tired of hearing this. That's a qualitative defense of what is in the end a quantitative question. So if that's true at 1.9, is it true at 2.9? Is it true at 3.9? At what point can you no longer say that? And until you, can, you tell me that number, I don't want to hear it, right? Because the real question is a quantitative question. How much should we do? And they are their, their experience um, in the, the, the very slow recovery after the, the Great Recession, uh, they point to the fact that there was too little stimulus, that the Recovery Act, which was nearly $900 billion, just wasn't enough. And then Republicans wouldn't let them do more and more. I, I disagree with that reading of the history. Um, the stimulus is meant to jumpstart the economy. You don't need to continually feed it stimulus. It has a natural growth mechanism. What they chose to do was take that natural growth mechanism 
and impede it every at every turn. I mean, they the they had over a hundred billion dollars in regulatory costs on average every year for eight straight years. They set up enormous reforms in health, which is a you know nearly a fifth of the economy, and in uh, the Dodd Frank Act, and, and that's the financial plumbing of the economy, and um, they they threatened higher taxes on on businesses, and you know they the regulatory approaches across the board. So. I, I think what they, they reaped was what they sowed, which was poor growth policy produces poor growth. And it, it's not a stimulus failure. And I guess one of my concerns is they may you know, go even bigger and still um, outweigh those impacts. Because if you think about uh, what they're doing is they, they, they put in the, the bill paid leave. They're going to have paid family leave because people could get sick and, or have to take care of their kids. Fine. Uh, they are going to have government subsidies for that paid leave for employers with less than 500 employees. But the, the big employers have to provide the leave and they have to pay for it. That's a mandate of about $100 billion. The minimum wage mandate is about $500 billion. And so if you're calling it stimulus and you're in putting in disguised taxes of $600 billion, what kind of growth are you going to get? So I, I, I worry that they have not learned the lesson and they're going to repeat it. Yeah. Wow. On the other side, you've also noted fear in the opposite direction uh, has to do with inflation. If we pump too much money into the economy, prices will rise, we'll get inflation. Do you think inflation is a real risk with the uh, American Rescue Plan? Uh, I don't think it's the main risk. Um, I understand the argument, but I actually went back and checked on the inflation of my youth. So I grew up in that high inflation era. Um was born in 1958. The 70s were a, a, a uniquely dismal combination of high inflation and high unemployment, poor economic growth, a uh, lot of scars. Uh, the way it got fixed was for Paul Volcker to become Fed chair and put the economy in a very deep recession. The Reagan recession was at that time the worst since the Great Depression and left a lot of uh, economic pain. And so going back there is not a good idea. But, but what it took to get there, as it turns out, is quite remarkable. Uh, during the late 60s, they they tried to simultaneously prosecute the Vietnam War and um, do all the spending necessary to do that without giving up anything on the home front. And so they ran the economy hot, really hot. Um, so right now we're 450 below potential GDP. They ran it for 24 consecutive months at, at an average of 3% above potential GDP. And they invited the inflation. Once you do six years of, of that kind of overstimulus you get what you get. This is a one-time thing. It might be really big. It's 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 nine percent of uh, of GDP, but I, we're not going to do it for six years. I, there's I don't see any way that'll happen. And we've had very low goods price inflation, and so I don't think reflexively that that's where we're going to get as this overnight suddenly get a big inflation. I think it's more likely to show up in asset prices. Right? We if we put two trillion dollars out there in the economy. A big chunk of it's going to get saved. That's what happened after the CARES Act. And um, you know, it'll go into a savings account, say, and that seems pretty safe. But then you think, eh, there's no real return in the savings account. I should, I got this Robinhood app. I should stick it in GameStop, you know? And the next thing you have is a lot of speculation on ever riskier investments. And that's the recipe for financial instability. And so I think that's the concern that I have right now. Hmm, interesting. What What are the other risks that come with a package that is you know, this size and too big? Uh, well, you run the risk of, of setting off ch a chain reaction events that you'd rather not uh, have. Like number one, you've used up 
$2 trillion of the borrowing capacity in the United States, and, and maybe you might want it at some point in the future. So you're, you're using ammo you don't need to. Um, that, that's always a concern. If there is a concern about um, financial instability, the Fed's going to pull back on its, its easy money policy. It's going to pull back the, the buying of, of treasuries. It's going to pull back on providing the liquidity facilities. It'll raise rates as a last resort, but you'll see financial conditions tighten. And when that happens, uh, rates start to creep up on their own naturally. We have a lot of debt outstanding. So now you're taking that debt and making it more expensive to service. You have to do that. You don't have a choice. That means there's less money available for other things. And so you're starting to squeeze yourself because you, you did too much on, on this uh, effort. Hmm. Okay. Uh, moving on, your, your your other testimony this week, tomorrow from today, which is the time of recording of Wednesday, you'll be testifying before the Senate Budget Committee. Uh, the title of this hearing itself is kind of striking. Should taxpayers subsidize the wages of large profitable corporations? Is that what's happening? And is that what the right way to think about um, the dynamic of work? Um, I will confess a little bit of... Um... Uh, lack of clarity about exactly what the hearing is about. Uh, the majority has not been particularly forthcoming about what they're looking for. and But I think the phenomenon they're concerned about is um, a, a worker um, with a job at a, at a large corporation in the, in the title, but it could be anywhere in my view, uh, simultaneously being on the social safety net. So, you know, you're working full time, but you're eligible for and collecting Medicare or Medicaid, and you, and you may be getting some... Uh, food assistance or something like that. Some people look at it and say, this is this is really wrong. The fact that we have Medicaid and, and, and the SNAP program allows them to pay them too little. We're subsidizing these, these corporations. And, and, and so what I, the points I would like to make is, uh, number one, um, that's conceptually wrong. Uh, the existence of other forms of income force you to pay more to attract the worker away from them. And so Wages are higher than they otherwise would be uh, because of the existence of the social safety net. Um, so that the, the, they've got the direction of, of this wrong, in my view, and, and the impacts uh, positive one on wages. And the second is that the, this is a, an argument that's a stalking horse for you got to raise the minimum wage to $15. And um, OK, we went, we looked in the data and um, for people making $15, you know, they, about Eight, nine, ten percent of them are on Medicaid, and a substantial fraction are on SNAP. And so, you're, you're not going to solve this problem um, just by going to fifteen dollars an hour. If if you indeed view it as a problem, I'm worried about that, and I'm especially worried now. Like right now, we've got um, lots of small businesses whose doors are shut, and lots of people out of work, and and they're the small businesses and the workers with the, the sort of thinnest margins as businesses and the least skills as workers. And the minimum wage is exactly the, the thing that's going to hit them. And, and so some of those workers will not be able to come back and some of those firms will not be able to reopen. So, I, so you know, we can have a nice discussion on whether you should raise the minimum wage. Let's have it next year or the year after for sure. Now is a really bad time to do this. Mm -hmm. Once people get back to work and all that. But we'll uh, we'll get into a little bit more of the minimum wage a little bit later. One of the points I, I think was in your testimony, but could you explain exactly how the anti-poverty programs push up wages? What is that interaction? The interaction is pretty simple. Um, you know, suppose I, uh, you know, sort of living with my Medicaid and my SNAP and um, uh, and I'm out of the labor force and I'm not, I'm not working. And, and you say, OK, I want Doug to, to, you know, 
get on the straight and narrow and have a job. What am I going to do? Well, let's raise the wage from, you know, 10 bucks to 15, whatever. Um, and, and I say, okay, yeah, now I'll do it. Well, what we've seen is that the anti-poverty programs are forcing work uh, employers to pay more to get people to participate and, and to work full time. And, and that's, that's not a shocking economic observation. The only question is how big is it? And I did some calculations a while back that suggested that the, the entire social, social safety net could at the, at the upside, the maximum, have raised wages by about 20%. And so, you know, that's not zero. It's not everything. It's not like they, they, wages would go away in the absence of a, a social safety net. I don't even think it's an argument to not have the social safety net. It's just let's be clear-headed about what's going on out there. Right, right. Okay. The focus of all this seems to be on large companies. Um, but the primary policy under consideration would affect all companies, not just the largest ones. Is there a way to target policies on just largest companies? And is that desirable? Um, so what, what you're essentially saying is, okay, we, we don't want to have this minimum wage increase, say that's the policy, on, on the small business community. So so for anyone above 50 or say 100 workers, whatever it might be, pick your number, you have to have a minimum wage of 15. If, if you're below that, you can stick with 725. You have just created a phenomenal tax on growth. Because if I go from 50 to 51 or 100 to 101, I have to pay them all twice as much. And, and I really don't like that. I mean, I would prefer for us to have sensible policies that apply to firms at all stages in their evolution and that we you know, can live with. They, they, there's no question that we are going to interfere with the growth of the economy as a whole through the mechanisms that raise revenue and support programs. Those programs have value and we accept that. Um, but, but, you know, let's keep the distortions to a minimum. That, that's the goal. Hmm. So one of those big companies, uh, Walmart recently uh, uh, announced recently that it's raising the minimum wage for its workers to 15 per hour. There's certainly a PR element to that announcement, public relations element to that announcement. But are there economic and policy lessons that we can take away from that? So I think one of the, there are, there are two big lessons. And, and let me first slightly correct what you just said. They raised the wages of about 400,000 odd workers uh, to average above $15 an hour. They did not move their entry level wage. They kept it at $11. That's a very important lesson. What that tells you is when they hire someone at entry level, their skills and their training and their experience don't support $15 an hour. And that's the problem with the minimum wage. You want that person to get the job. You want them to turn into the $15 an hour worker through getting some experience and, and, and acquiring skills. And if you forced the minimum wage to 15, they don't get the job and they never get their first step on the so-called ladder of success and, and they're cut off. That's, that's why I'm concerned about the minimum wage getting too high. So they didn't do that. They said, okay, for those who, who have sort of you know, matured a little bit, you, you make more. Great. I think that's tremendous. Second reason they did that, they had a fantastic year. They just said, look, we had great growth, way above what we expected. And we want to share that with workers. You know how you raise wages? Have good growth. Simple lesson. Fair enough. Um, so finally, I'd like to get your take on the current state of policymaking in Washington. Um, some of President Biden's picks are spurring calls for you know, more bipartisanship. Um, and yet it looks like we're headed to, you know, a strictly party line vote on the American Rescue Plan. What is the appetite for policymaking right now in your eyes? Um, there's a, a hidden appetite. Um, we saw, you know, a group of six senators, Republican senators go to the White House and, and, and pitch them on doing something in bipartisan fashion. 
So that that's a clear appetite. It, it's been thus far ignored um, in practice. They're they're not um, doing anything that has a remotely bipartisan chance. I find that disappointing. Um, you know, to my eye, there was a a, a, a deal to be made. Um, you know, you you take the things you need to do on the vaccine front, uh, the things you need to do on the unemployment insurance front, food stamps, the SNAP program. Um, you put them into a, a bundle. And that's what the Republican senators were appealing to. It, it turns out to be $600, $800 billion, whatever it is. You pass that in regular order. Um, and then if there are other things you want to do that you can't get Republicans to support, then we'll then go to reconciliation. But they skipped step number one. And they could have gotten that, I think, quickly, quicker than this is happening, and, and established a, a practice that matches the rhetoric. They don't have anything that matches the rhetoric right now. Yeah. So, I mean, one final question. Do you think the American Rescue Plan will indeed make it through Congress? Uh, something with the name American Rescue Plan will be signed by the president of the United States. You know, you can't let your newly elected president fail on his on his first venture. And the Democrats are not going to have that happen. So it may have to get modified to, to make it through, but, but something will make it. Great. Well, Doug, thank you again for this discussion today. I look forward to seeing you live tomorrow at the Senate Budget Committee and see what, what you have to say there. Your popcorn. Enjoy the show. Yeah, should be a good one. Thanks again, Doug. Sure. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.